Defence Dialogue, a podcast discussing contemporary challenges in the area of European security and defence. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Nicholas Novaki. Welcome to Defence Dialogue, a podcast series by the Wilfrid Martin Centre for European Studies that discusses contemporary issues and challenges in the area of European security and defence. I am Dr. Nicholas Novaki, and today we're talking to Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who was the Commanding General of US Army Europe until December 2017. And he's now retired from active duty, and he currently holds the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis, or CEPA. The Pershing Chair was established in honor of uh, General John J. Pershing, the first U.S. general to lead American forces in Europe during World War I, and it contributes to SIPA research and provides military insight on questions of geostrategy, deterrence, territorial defense, and uh, European military balance. Lieutenant General Hodges, welcome to Defense Dialogue. Nicholas, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. The first uh, issue uh, I would like to discuss uh, with you is kind of compare your uh, previous life in the Army and your current life in the think tank world. So my question is, uh, given that you served as the commanding general of U.S. Army Europe uh, until December last year, uh, and you now uh, have entered the think tank world, what's the main difference and the main similarity between uh, the Army and the think tank world? Hmm. Well, the, the principal similarity, of course, is uh, the focus and emphasis on uh, security and stability uh, in Europe. Uh, that's what I worked on the last three years uh, when I was headquartered in Wiesbaden and working with the Alliance. And so now with SIPA, I continue to work on security and stability in Europe, this transatlantic uh, relationship that's so important from both sides of the ocean. So that's the principal similarity is the purpose. Uh, the main difference is really uh, from a personal standpoint, as I go through this transition to civilian life, um, I used to be surrounded by a large number of people that were helping me get through the day. I'm now um, learning how to do a lot more things on my own. I'm figuring that part out. That's been an interesting part of the transition, but also liberating. Uh, The other difference, of course, is um, there's a uh, a certain degree of flexibility that uh, is very refreshing and welcoming to to be able to engage on things that I would really like to engage on and to to speak. Um, People would expect me to speak uh, maybe even more openly um, uh, where appropriate. So you can express your thoughts more freely and uh, have basically a bit more freedom uh, than you did in the... uh... Well, I I think it's important that the reason that uh, military officers don't uh, speak out uh, is because all of us in in liberal democracies, the military is under civilian control by design. And so uh, all of us in the military grow up understanding and respecting that. And so that's why there's such a reluctance to to say something in public that's, that's counter to whatever the policy is is as established by our elected officials. And I think most most civilians would be concerned if officers in uniform were speaking out contrary to what the civilian authority had declared. Now, uh, at the same time, everybody should be confident that their senior officers in each country are indeed being very candid with their civilian leadership behind closed doors in the appropriate setting, giving their best professional advice. But never, you, we would never want anybody to question the uh, authority of the civilian 
facial. My next question is about the, um, the US-led missile strikes uh, with France and the United Kingdom in Syria last weekend. As, as everyone knows, uh, these strikes were a response uh, to the suspected chemical weapons attack by the Assad regime. And I, I just wanted to ask, what are your thoughts uh, on these strikes? Three things. Uh, number one, I, I thought it was important that it was uh, a coalition, you know, three countries uh, specifically involved with the UK, France, uh, and the United States. So this was not a unilateral strike by the United States. And uh, no doubt there was a, a lot of coordination would have been done with allies in the region uh, as well, because these things don't happen in isolation. Uh, and I was impressed that the uh, target selection was done to avoid potential contact with Russia. Um, this was this was very important. And I was also impressed with uh, Secretary Mattis' uh, effort to make sure to confirm what we knew about the, the chemical attack, um, because you know that would that would have a lot of other implications if we were not entirely sure. So that was that was my first thing. Uh, the second thing, it's uh, the idea that uh, President Assad would use uh, chemical weapons against his own people. Here we are in, in year six of a civil war there, um, the, the brutality, the number of civilians that have been killed, and for Russia and Iran both to stand by, uh, allow that. I mean, they could they could control that. They could influence uh, the Syrians. Um, so that's that's frankly unacceptable behavior from uh, a great nation like Russia. Uh, the third point I would make, though, is that uh, a strike on targets is not a strategy. I mean, this, this is a that was a necessary step to take. Uh, but the, what the broader strategy, and frankly, the, um, the American president um, needs to be very clear about what he expects and to be consistent on the signaling. Uh, I think it kind of uh, upset or was not helpful when he said, you know, we may be pulling out. I mean, that was a surprise to most of his military leaders when he said that. And so having a clear, consistent strategic outcome that we want to achieve, that all the allies and the people, our partners in the region, Saudi Arabia, for example, Turkey, uh, would uh, can work towards that's I think that's still missing. Moving on to um, uh, f uh, from the Middle East uh, to, to to the European Union. Within the European Union, there's been a lot of developments in the area of security and defense policy over the past couple of years. And in fact, uh, many EU officials themselves and some heads of state and government also often point out that over the past couple of years, more has been achieved in the European Union in the area of defense than than had been achieved uh, in the 60 years before that. One of the most kind of talked about initiative is this. A thing called Permanent Structured Cooperation, or PESCO, and uh, for which there's a lot of hope and expectations in Brussels and also other member state capitals. But there were some surprised faces and surprised looks in, in, in Brussels when the United States earlier this year voiced a little bit of concern about these uh, EU defense efforts. So my, my question is, why in your opinion does the US seem to have like some reservations about what the EU is now doing in the area of security and defense? Let me say I have no reservations. In fact, I'm enthusiastic about what I've learned here over the last few days about what this new level of uh, integration of European defense really is starting to look like. It's been very helpful for me to understand that given the uh, engagements and meetings I've attended here yesterday and, and today. I am very uh, encouraged. And I think uh, Ms. Margarini deserves a lot of credit along with the other leaders to push this effort alone, along. The, the concerns that uh, some people might have, I think, about is this competition with NATO? Is this a European army that would undermine or delay NATO's capability, um, which that was also my initial reaction until I began to understand more and more what it was all about. And I really do believe that this is complementary to NATO. In fact, it's necessary for NATO, uh, not competition. Uh, for sure, 
the uh, a key part of this will be transparency uh, between the leadership of the European Union and the uh, the Commission uh, and the uh, military staff, for example, with the alliance. I think that transparency is important so that we don't have redundancies and uh, and, and help build and identify those areas where we can have good cooperation. I think cyber is an ex- excellent example. My favorite issue of uh, military mobility, clearly the European Union uh, is extremely well suited to help improve that. So I'm, I'm encouraged in that regard. I, I think the other thing that some Americans are concerned about is can we still compete defense industry, for example, Will we be able to compete in the European markets? And I think uh, the answer is going to be yes. But competition is always good. And frankly, in the great scheme of things, uh, I am most interested and happy to see Europeans taking on more responsibility. And if they're able to uh, streamline procedures where they are more they are more efficient with their defense spending to get more capability, I think. That's a good thing. That's what every president since Truman has has asked for, is Europeans will do more. And and this looks like a real progress. And the fact that it's binding was also, uh, I think, an important part of this. You already brought up the issue of uh, military mobility, and I wanted to ask about that a bit later. But I mean, let's actually turn that to that issue now. And my my, my question is, why is the issue of military mobility like so important at the moment? Because when you follow the debate here in Brussels and then also on the other side of the Atlantic, I mean, there is a clear consensus, which is quite unique and rare in the area of European defense cooperation, that one issue that the European Union is planning to do gets so much support also from the United States. So why is, in your opinion, so many European countries, but then also the United States, so enthusiastic about this initiative about uh, military mobility? This is all about deterrence, about preventing a crisis, about giving our political leaders options other than having to do a liberation campaign into a Lithuania, for example, or Romania or something like that. This is about speed. The combined military capabilities of all the nations of NATO, uh, of the European Union, significantly greater than what the Russian Federation has. So I, I don't envision a situation like in the Cold War where there was the potential for force on force, large, huge armies banging into each other. Um, Russia has no desire to do that. They don't have the capability to do that. They don't have the desire to do that. Uh, they, they just want to, uh, I believe, change the international order to one where EU and, and NATO are not so unified so that Russia can have a more dominant role. And to accomplish that, Um, They would need all they have to do is a limited strike into a NATO country to demonstrate that NATO can't protect its members um, or that maybe even some members might not actually respond to a limited attack into a particular country. And and that means they can move very. You don't have to have a lot of stuff, but you have to be able to move fast. So for us to prevent that from happening, to demonstrate that we can move as fast or faster than Russian Federation troops, that gives us a better opportunity to discourage them from making a terrible miscalculation about alliance commitment and capabilities. So that's why speed is so important and the ability to move. And of course, the Very High Readiness Joint Task Force, VJTF, led by Germany, and now UK, soon to be Germany, um, has to cross multiple rivers, has to cross multiple national boundaries in order to get to, say, the Sawaki Corridor region, uh, Northeast Poland, Lithuania, as an example. Um, The U.S. bringing forces across um, from the continental United States back into Europe, seaports, airports, highways, rail. So we, we began to realize this a couple of years ago during all of our exercises, how difficult it was to move, even on a planned exercise, going from 
border to crossing borders of NATO nations, EU nations. I was really naive. I, I imagined it would be much easier. I was wrong. So fortunately, the alliance and the uh, European Union have both recognized to preserve peace, uh, you have to have capability and you have to demonstrate that capability. And that means you have to be able to move. Now, in the older days, we could always move everywhere in West Germany. But now, you know, now you have to move across all of Germany, Poland, Baltic countries. You have different rail gauges. The uh, bridges do not necessarily hold the weight of a German Leopard tank or a British Challenger tank or an American Abrams tank, for example. And also, we, I believe we would have to do this in peacetime conditions. Very few civilian leaders would want to do something that looks escalatory or provocative. So these movements in a pre-crisis environment are going to be done with EU road laws still in effect. Um, no guaranteed access to rail, for example. We'll still be competing with commercial customers for rail. So I'm looking for ways to incentivize that. I, I think Germany, for example, should get credit towards 2% of its uh, for defense spending if it improves rail infrastructure that has real military value. I think that should count. Did you come up with uh, or encounter many of these uh, in, uh, sort of infrastructure problems and mobility problems uh, during your time as a commanding general of U.S. Army Europe? I remember reading uh, an article in which you were quoted at the end of last year and in which you discussed this this, this mobility issue. And I, I, if I remember correctly, you, you, you pointed out that it often takes even day, days or even weeks to move uh, uh, units uh, from one country to another because mm -hmm. of the infrastructure problems, because of the paperwork they have to fill out uh, on the borders, etc. Yeah, um, there's infrastructure. Can the rail, the bridges, the ports, can they sustain the weight and the volume? And then there's the legal aspect to it, uh, aspect of permissions to cross borders. And uh, and then there's the capacity. Is there enough rail, for example, to, to handle this? So we've had to address all three of those, encountered it all the time. Not because there were bad people or knuckleheads or, or something like that. It was just... Nobody had ever put the requirement out there before, and so the exercises helped us identify uh, the requirement. And so I think um, nations, allies have responded quickly. The alliance has worked this very hard. The EU has worked this very hard. You know, the notion of a military Schengen zone was something that I thought all Europeans would recognize. Oh, okay, so the equivalent of visa-free travel. Well, that's kind of what you need for military convoys and not just U.S., but for all, all the nations involved to be able to, to move around. To, to So we need the equivalent of a military Schengen. And I think the EU is, and I was, I was late to realize this, um, but the EU is uh, a critical part uh, of getting that done. At the moment, like both sides of the um, Atlantic, uh, the United States and Europe also agree that uh, European countries need to do more to invest in, in uh, defense R&D and, and to also like purchase new capabilities. And, and capabilities is also an issue that you already uh, briefly touched. But I wanted to ask uh, from an American perspective, what type of capabilities should Europeans prioritize in their future R&D investment decisions and, and in their future uh, procurement plans and, and decisions as mm -hmm. well? First and foremost is get all of their equipment and their formations up to a level of readiness. I mean, there's a lot of equipment already on the ground, uh, but getting it to where it's it's ready, maintenance, um, ready to go. How would you explain readiness to like to those listeners who don't necessarily like uh, understand ex exactly what it means? Okay, so uh, if you've got a country that has um, tanks and most of those tanks are inoperable, broken because they're waiting on repair parts, you would say they have a very low level of readiness, or maybe the crews 
for helicopters have not uh, flown uh, much at nighttime, for example. So they, the level of readiness for the, for the aviation crews would be below what would be expected so that they could be employed. And the, uh, the Bundeswehr is loaded with exceptional officers. They know how to do this, but uh, they still depend on a system that has to provide spare parts, for example. So there's a system part of this as well as a training and, a, and a implementation aspect to it. So that's the first place where I would want to see investment is, is getting up to a level of readiness. Uh, The second place, I think, is probably uh, on uh, transport, logistics. And here again, I think Germany has taken such a a great leadership role, taking on this new joint uh, sustainment and enabling command of part of NATO's adaptation. Uh, This is really uh, a good good thing for all of us because it's the right country with capabilities, the geography, it's logical. So what I'd like to see is countries invest more in the logistics that would enable rapid movement, plus ammunition storage, uh, things like that. Uh, I think uh, air and missile defense is an area that really needs attention. The uh, Germany, the Netherlands, Spain, Greece uh, all have Patriot, for example. But whatever system you use, as long as it's interoperable, it can be integrated into the NATO Integrated Air and Missile Defense Network. That's something that's needed, and particularly up in the Baltic countries. Uh, there, there is a, a real requirement for air and missile defense at, at all the different levels. The um, I'm an I'm an Army guy, an infantryman, but I know that there are not enough maritime capabilities. Uh, the Alliance really needs nations to invest uh, and have ships, submarines, uh, aviation, maritime aviation capabilities. That's an area that needs investment. You're someone who knows Europe extremely well and, and, and you've traveled all around Europe and you know what the concerns here are. And one of one of the biggest concerns for especially countries in the East is, is uh, the threat posed by Russia. And um, there is some some kind of concerns constantly, uh, not, not just in Eastern Europe, but also more in the Central Europe about like what the intentions of Mr. Putin will be and then uh, what should NATO do to make sure that uh, the West's and NATO's deterrence against Russia is as credible as possible. So my question is, as you have visited so many of these frontline uh, European countries, how credible in your opinion is, is NATO's current deterrence uh, vis-a-vis Russia and what could perhaps be done to make it even more credible? At the Warsaw Summit, uh, 28 nations of NATO, 29 now, of course, with Montenegro, but at the time, 28 nations all agreed that we had to transition from assurance to deterrence, which means you had to have real capability on the ground, demonstrate that capability and demonstrate will to use that capability in order to have credible deterrence. And so the decision to create the Enhanced Forward Presence EFP battle groups uh, that would deploy into Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland was a very important step. These were not flags. These were actual units with real capability. UK is the framework nation or lead nation in Estonia, Canada, and Latvia. And that was good news getting Canada back on the continent. United States and Poland, and then maybe most important, Germany uh, being the first nation to step forward and say, we will provide a battle group and to put it in Lithuania and then to deploy it so fast. I mean, this was really for any large organization to move as quickly as the alliance did on the deployment of these EFP battle groups. Impressive uh, and very effective. So that sent a very strong signal. And by the way, you had French, Italian, Spanish, Uh, Croatian soldiers from countries along NATO's southern flank are part of this. So this was uh, also, I think, strategically 
uh, very important. So I'm, I'm excited about what the Alliance has done here to send that very clear signal um, that, that we're committed to collecting security. Now, you have to continue to exercise, and there are plenty of things still to be, uh, to, to be worked on, but I'm confident that these efforts, uh, the work that SACUR um, is doing, that the uh, Alliance is doing, if we can get this military mobility part improved, and if we can see improved air and missile defense, which, by the way, would include remissioning air forces from air policing into air defense, I think that, uh, and the United States, of course, has got to stay involved with rotational forces and the capability that's currently planned then I think that makes it very clear uh, that we are committed and, uh, and capable of protecting our allies. The last issue I wanted to discuss with you briefly is, is, uh, relates to the uh, transatlantic relationship and the, uh, the future of that relationship. And more specifically, people uh, say these uh, more and more these days that uh, there's a lack of trust currently in the transatlantic relationship for various reasons uh, that have to do with developments in both sides of the Atlantic. As someone who is American has served in the U.S. Army, but also um, knows Europe extremely well. My question is, what in your opinion could be done to bring back decision makers and, and people's uh, trust in the transatlantic relationship on both sides of the of the Atlantic? Well, I'm, I'm anxious to see uh, what happens in July at the NATO summit. Um, my sense is that uh, uh, we're going to have a successful summit, meaning that the uh, the adaptation work that's been done by the uh, uh, leadership and staff of NATO uh, and that uh, Allied Command operations is going to be uh, borne out, and uh, we're going to see an alliance that is relevant, adapting to the change security environment. And Secretary General Stoltenberg has been uh, exceptionally clear in his communications and, and uh, expectations. So that. That will do a lot, I think, to help reinforce this transatlantic relationship. Every American president, I mean, President Obama, uh, President Bush, uh, all of them, Clinton, Bush, and so on, have all said, we need Europe to do more. They have to take on more of the burden. And, and uh, NATO has got to be relevant. So I think we're going to see that borne out in July. And then, candidly, I hope that my president is very clear about reminds everybody that the United States for 101 years is committed to stability and security in Europe. We have millions of uh, American men and women have come over here and served in wartime and peacetime. Billions and billions of dollars been spent. So that that commitment should be very clear. But it's, it's not helpful if the president doesn't make it absolutely. Nobody should question that. That would help. At the same time, this is a transatlantic relationship. So on the European side of the ocean, uh, Europeans have to, uh, I think, continue to take on more and more. And by the way, I learned a lot here in the last two days about what countries are doing that is not necessarily immediately apparent to the U.S. I think there's some, uh, it could do more to explain, for example, what is in fact being done. The, the 2% is part of this trust. Now, I would like to get the narrative off of 2% and and more on find ways to incentivize people to invest in, in defense. But everybody agreed to that 2% GDP and we still got six years to go because it was a 10-year window in which to do it. Most nations are, almost everybody has stopped decline Everybody is improving spending, and so I think that will also do a lot to uh, help with this relationship. But, but finally, it's in the best interest of the United States 
that Europe is secure and stable. Uh, economic relationship between the between North America and the EU is about five times more than it is anywhere else in the world. So for our own economic prosperity, we depend on a secure and stable Europe. The United States cannot do anything by itself. We don't have the capacity anymore to do things by ourselves. And also, more importantly, we don't want to do anything by ourselves. We're, we're more effective when we have allies and we have a mandate of some sort. And all of our best and most reliable allies come from Europe as well as Canada and Australia. And so um, for those two main reasons, the United States is going to stay involved in Europe, I'm sure of it. Lieutenant General Hodges, thank you so much for your insightful and very optimistic comments. And and thank you also for participating in in, uh, this uh, Defence Dialogue podcast series. And I would also like to thank our our listeners and uh, and just to say that stay tuned for the the next episode. Uh, This has been the uh, Martin Centre Defence Dialogue podcast series. And uh, thank you very much. And have a wonderful day. That was today's episode of Defence Dialogue. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.